So I'm adding a caveat to this episode here because I have dug further into this and I found that one of the most important pieces of this little thought experiment that I lay out in this episode does not work the way that I had interpreted it. So by taking out a critical piece of the foundation, basically the entire game theory I lay out here falls apart. So I will be explaining what I learned and how it would really work in Guys Take 55. But I am leaving this episode up just because, well, it is a fun thought experiment. And it's also important to remember that thinking about the bugs of a proposal isn't merely talking about whether or not it has a software problem or if there's a there's a contradiction in the code. It also is about understanding the economic consequences of a quote, feature being proposed for Bitcoin. It isn't always so simple. But with that caveat, know that what I lay out in this episode specifically is for the most part incorrect, because the entire thing hinges on the fact that exchanges would use this tool to save their cost on fees in batching and then offload that cost to the customer, which simply isn't how the CTV commitments work. Like I said, I'll explain the real story in Guys Take 55. With that covered, let's get into the show. We are jumping back into it today with another discussion on CTV, but more importantly, the economic incentives of block space debt and transaction grenades. This one's going to be interesting. It's time for a Guys Take episode. The best in Bitcoin made audible. I am Guy Swan, and this is Bitcoin Audible. What is up, guys? Welcome back to Bitcoin Audible. I am Guy Swan, the guy who has read more about Bitcoin than anybody else you know. And that is true. I have the proof of work. It is here at Bitcoin Audible. <laughs> okay. Um, so uh, uh, I have a read coming from Sam Callahan at Swan Bitcoin. And it is a really, really good one on Lightning. I might actually just go ahead and publish it today because I got half of it recorded last night, basically. And I'm, uh, I'm throwing a, a couple of uh, uh, some notes together for it. Um, but I also, I just wanted to get this episode out because I've been talking about this with a few different people and kind of hashing out this idea. It's an extension of something in the CTV episode as I dig more into this. And really, I've just been kind of expanding. I mean, I've still been digging more into CTV specifically, but I've just been kind of thinking about the economic incentives and kind of the game theory of this, how it would actually be used in the real world and liking it less and less in the context of something I mentioned in the previous episode, uh, in the, the previous guy's take, I mean, of the, uh, I think I referred to it in that episode as, as transaction debt. Um, and, but, but I use the example of there's like a huge door into uh, like quote unquote onboarding because you can hide so much behind a single UTXO by making it commitments within the hash tree but then those things have to be unrolled. There's no way to, at some point, they must be unrolled. And so 
Like it's not actually changing the UTXO. The, the eventual UTXO set that needs to exist, it's just pushing it into the future. And the more and more I thought about this, the less and less I liked it. Because a lot of people have been selling CTV as a scaling solution. And this, this was important to be able to onboard like a ton of people in a very short amount of time. And I don't, I just don't like the asymmetry of it. And what's funny is that this is specifically something that can be done with CTV, but it increasingly seems like essentially any sort of commitment, um, any sort of means of committing to uh, future restrictions on the UTXO kind of necessarily has this problem. I don't know how you would restrict it to only like to be able to commit to like a few things as opposed to 10,000 things if it's just a hash tree, if you're just using using the hash of the data to prove that you have fulfilled the commitment um, because you have no idea how much data is behind the hash. So if you accept the hash, like, you know, like if, if I hash hello world, it's it's a hash. And if I hash the Gutenberg Bible, it's the same sized hash. Like there's no there's no explicit thing distinguishing what the size of the data is behind the hash. And because of that, I don't know how in the hell it doesn't it doesn't seem to be possible to distinguish that you can only hash something of a certain size of a, of a or of a certain set of characteristics outside of the fact that um, it obviously has to be something that would be valid on the Bitcoin chain. But obviously a million transactions are valid on the Bitcoin chain and one transaction is valid on the Bitcoin chain all the same. It's that's just a question of whether it's valid. It's not got anything to do with how many transactions there are. Like there's there's no stipulation on you can only submit X amount of data, right? So my worry is that this will actually fundamentally and negatively alter the economics of block space. And I think it's important, I think it's really important to consider this because the economics of Bitcoin are the security of Bitcoin. Like it's not just the fact that the code is safe or that there's not like an explicit bug that makes nodes crash. It's so much of it is economics and game theory as well that honest action is less costly than malicious action. And I'll talk about what we'll get into. That's, that's, that's what I want this episode to be about is just the way that I think CTV could potentially alter this in, in a way that could actually be bad. But I want to go ahead and thank our sponsor uh, who makes this episode possible today so that we don't have to interrupt uh, during the conversation because I'm just going to kind of rant this out for the next 40 minutes. So do you hold your keys? Because if you don't, do you even know if you really own Bitcoin? Spoiler alert, you do not. In fact, you do not own anything that is Bitcoin related. You own a debt. You own a promise. If your coins are on an exchange, you are holding the trust of the institution that you are working with. That is not Bitcoin. When you hold Bitcoin with your keys on your BitBox hardware wallet, you are actually owning Bitcoin. No one can revoke that. No one can bail on their promise. No one can take it from you unless they have your keys. And that's also a great reason to put it on a secure hardware wallet. 
Your keys are generated inside the BitBox. The signing occurs inside the BitBox, not on your device, not on anything internet connected. The address that your Bitcoin were sent to is confirmed on chain. It is irreversible. It is yours. And you know, some people say that leaving coin, people leave coins on exchanges because it's easy. I call bullshit. The BitBox is easy as hell to use and takes like literally a couple of minutes to set the thing up. You're just procrastinating and you know it. Get yourself a BitBox. Get your Bitcoin behind your keys on your hardware wallet and get 5% off with code GUY. Go to guyswan.com slash BitBox. It'll take you right there. So let's get into... So I wanted to do an episode real quick on just this concept and separate this out from the features of CTV or similar uh, proposals and BIPs. And I also don't want to say, even though I'm kind of coming down on the just... I No, I don't want to be activating CTV anytime soon. And it also appears... I actually haven't seen this from... Jeremy specifically, but I've heard from multiple people that he's not even pushing the speedy trial anymore. Um, so it seems like a lot of the the pressure has kind of taken a couple steps back and we're sitting and waiting. But because I felt like I actually stumbled upon a reason the economic incentives for this are just kind of bad um, uh, in regards to block space. I don't know. I wanted to just detail this out specifically as an episode or as a concept separate from the rest of the discussion. So just to go over the idea of CTV again and how it would be used as a quote-unquote scalability option. I'll use the same example that uh, Jeremy and Shinobi and a lot of people used in the, the conversation that we had and it comes up a lot just because it's, it's a little bit extreme but it's just simple to understand um, or simple to illustrate the point. Let's say an exchange needs to withdraw to 10,000 people. Well, you can't, I mean, maybe depending on aggregation, you basically can't fit 10,000 UTXOs into a single block. I don't think you can, at least. Um, a block normally will hold about 3,000-ish, maybe 4,000-ish, if you really stretch things and everything, SegWit, et cetera, et cetera. Transactions, um, if you take away, you know, a lot of the signatures and stuff, I don't know how many UTXOs that is, but 10,000 is probably pushing it no matter what, no matter which way you turn it. Regardless, it would be expensive, uh, you know, have a big old hunk of a fee and inevitably would be difficult to get into a block and uh, maybe impossible to get into a block and maybe would have to happen over a few different blocks. So what could they do? With CTV... They can withdraw it to a single UTXO. They can send it to a single address. And built within that address is a hash tree that commits to all 10,000 uh, 10, of the addresses of the individual users and the relevant amounts of Bitcoin they are going to receive. So let's say for some crazy reason, all 10,000 of these people were going to get one Bitcoin on chain, it would look like a single 10,000 Bitcoin address or UTXO, except that the only way this UTXO could be spent is by then breaking it up into 10,000 single, like one Bitcoin UTXOs that go to very explicit places. So you can treat 
you can almost you can almost treat that ten thousand uh, Bitcoin UTXO that ten thousand Bitcoin address on chain as if your funds are already withdrawn because the only thing that they can do from that point is your Bitcoin must go to you. Period. So there's a lot of interesting things that you can do with uh, with that tool, and I don't think in a general sense, that is a negative thing to have. I think there's a lot of really great benefits that you could get from that. But the CTV thing itself, the that withdrawal, I think is actually a really bad thing for the dynamics of block space fees and block space economics. And that's why I think the best way to refer to it, the way to think about it, is as block space debt. You're basically committing to 10,000 UTXOs later, but not paying for them yet. And so I've been thinking about how this could be used maliciously, and there's a number of different ways this could be used kind of nefariously by, you know, just going back to the block size wars is like a key example, is how could they have maybe used this tool to cause problems when... Uh, to to increase the pressure, essentially. Because one of the things that happened on chain uh, or happened during the block space wars that actually caused a big problem was that the blockchain was spammed. Like there was very clear indication that people were purposefully spamming the chain in order to kind of inflate the mempool and inflate the uh, the necessity of people to feel that they need to up their fees because the, the fee structure is still really messy and fee estimates are bad. So when the mempool is full, even when it's with a ton of low fee stuff, it tends to, basically fee estimates tend to overestimate. So it kind of exaggerated the speed with which fees kept increasing for the next block because it appeared as if there's you know 50 blocks worth of legitimate transactions when that might not have necessarily been the case. But... The beauty of Bitcoin is that spam costs money, right? Anybody who spams the chain has to pay for it. Anybody who's creating 10,000, a million UTXOs has to pay for those UTXOs. Right now, the exchanges pay the price of withdrawing to their customers. They cannot offload that cost. And, you know, this is also one of the reasons we pushed for P2SH, back in the day, is that by committing to a hash, it pushed the fee toward in the right direction. Um, because originally, when you had to put all of the relevant data in the transaction up front, is that I could put restrictions on my UTXO, uh, on my address, but the person, and, and you know, maybe that would make it bulky and have a big signature and a big script, but the person who was actually sending it to me would be the one that had to pay the fee. Because all the data would be on the sender side. So even though I'm the one who wanted the restrictions, the person who was sending it to me had to pay the fee. So P2SH changed that dynamic back. It, it leaned it back in the right direction, where basically all they were paying to was a hash. And then when I unrolled that hash and gave the revealed the restrictions and the opcode and the signatures and all the data, then I was paying the fee. And that was an important adjustment or correction to the economic incentives. In this case, CTV is actually the reverse. It's moving it back in the opposite direction. 
the exchange is actually being able to dump the cost of withdrawal onto the user at some random date into the future in which we don't even know what the cost is going to be. I mean, shit, we can't estimate what the fee is going to be for the next block. We suck at it. Imagine trying to estimate what it's going to be in two weeks or in two months. We just have no idea. And then to add to that is that it also changes the fee paid by the customer because you have to kind of unroll the tree in steps. Um, so uh, uh, Ruben, when I was talking to Jeremy in the Twitter spaces, and if I'm wrong about any of this, I'm, I would love to know um, for what reason, but um, uh, he said, which I thought was interesting at first, but then again, kind of the more I leaned into it, the more I thought this, this doesn't even, this does not feel like good economics is that, um, the people who unroll it first will pay for many more transactions, will have a much higher cost than the people who unroll it later. So of the 10,000 participants, I don't remember what the size of the example we used. Um, I'll say it's 10,000, but it might actually been like quite a bit more. I'm not sure exactly how the exponent works out in the hash tree. But um, uh, let's just use five since that's the example that Jeremy said. But the, the first person to attempt to withdraw from that 10,000 10, hidden UTXOs behind one address, um, the first person who tries to withdraw will actually have to pay for five transactions rather than just one because you have to kind of unroll to the next transaction that then commits to the next set of transactions that commits to the next ones. And obviously each one gets a multiple of the previous. So the, you know, the fact that you only have to pay for five to commit to 10,000 is, or, or whatever the actual exponent is, um, is, a, is cool, except for the fact that it means that the fees are not the same for all of the users. And again, the exchange is still pushing the fee onus onto the user. Now this is proposed as a mechanism for congestion control transactions, which sounds like a good idea, which sounds like, like the ability to offload the block space debt into the future when fees are really, really high, but essentially give the user some degree of guarantee of their ownership seems on its face, like, like in, in, a, in, a, in a shallow, in a shallow way, seems like a really, really good thing to have. Here's the problem, is that the economics never make it such that there's a reason you wouldn't always use this. Example is, even if blocks are completely empty, like an exchange is still going to prefer paying for one address, one UTXO, than 10,000, because it's a 99.99% savings on fees, and they get to offload this to the user. So... It's high, it seems highly unlikely to me that this is going to be something that is going to be used only when there is high congestion and high fees, and then people will stop using it when there are low fees. And in fact, this will just get increasingly larger. It will be like a, a debt bubble in a credit crisis because the amount of debt is hidden. And that's the other thing is that with a CTV transaction, we have no idea how many UTXOs are hidden behind that. So we can't even see the amount of debt in our market. So if they lock it up to 10,000 UTXOs and anybody else is trying to check, 
even the 10,000 participants can only see that their commitment is in there. Nobody knows how many UTXOs that is. Nobody knows how much debt there is. So it's like trying to price an interest rate when we don't know how much debt versus capital we actually have. And if the economic incentive is to actually use this always, well, then it's not difficult at all to imagine a scenario where an exchange, Coinbase starts using this. And in fact, why wouldn't they go ahead and start promoting that everybody suddenly hold their own keys rather than hold it with Coinbase? Like this is a great way for them to A, offload this rather enormous cost that they had. They can even still charge people some tiny withdrawal fee because the Coinbase users don't know. They're all custodial anyway. And then it looks like they're, you know, pumping all the the Bitcoin core, uh, like not core, like Bitcoin core, like the, the client, but like the the Bitcoin mantra of not your keys, not your coins. Let's get everybody to hold their own keys. Uh, so they start using CTV and block space falls. Uh, and then, you know, Binance and Kraken and all the other exchanges, they're not going to pay for this exorbitant price that Coinbase has now turned into a revenue stream by, you know, charging like, oh, we cut our fees by 90%. It's like, well, they're just charging you 10% of the previous fee and they're not paying for any of it um, uh, because you're still the one that's going to have to pay. And the user's not going to know, right? They're just going to get it to whatever their wallet that's CTV compatible or they can read the CTV, so to speak. But then the other ex exchanges start doing this, and suddenly a ton of the volume uh, in blocks goes away. And then it becomes the norm because it's just a huge cost savings. But what have we done? Have we really helped onboard anybody? No, we've opened it up. We've now opened up Bitcoin to be used for a whole bunch of transactions that it otherwise wouldn't have because there is the appearance of not needing all of this uh, block space anymore. However, we have not changed that dynamic. We still need all of that block space that we are now not using. So what happens? People slowly start to unroll. People slowly start to, the first people start to unroll and they pay for five transactions instead of you know, one transaction, they're like, what the hell? Why is my fee high? But, you know, block space is still kind of minimal, so they don't really think about it. But, you know, as weeks, as months, as years go on and people are starting to use it, and then suddenly, you know, we have a bull market. Suddenly, you know, that's, there are these spikes in the market and the social sphere when things happen where suddenly people need access to their Bitcoin and people actually start moving things in mass. And those things can feed back on themselves very, very quickly. Bull markets are a great example. When, when there's lots of growth in the price, people want to use their Bitcoin. They want to buy that boat and accidentally lose their keys. They want to go on vacation. They want to, you know, finally get a Netflix subscription because they've been living on a mattress and stacking sats for two years. Uh, <laughs> but um, uh, so they, they start to unroll all of these CTV transactions. And suddenly block space is full. Block space is full and it's getting worse. And the mempool is growing and things are getting worse and worse. And suddenly we realize that not only, not only do we not have the block space to unroll everything we already committed to, but now all of the reasons we were able to, all of the use cases we were able to have for Bitcoin because we had unusually low block space or uh, block demand for such an extended period of time, those get immediately priced out completely. So we have this market shift is much like a credit crisis, right? Everybody, 
when when there there's the appearance of abundant credit everybody starts building houses then everybody has to stop that you have to immediately cancel all the housing projects during the credit crisis but here's the problem here's the really fundamental problem here is that they're economically incentivized to use this tool when block space is abundant what happens when the inevitable congestion from unrolling those utxos hits the hits the mempool hits hits the block space market are they going to stop using ctv or stop using congestion control transaction or using commitments in place of full withdrawal or are they now going to be incentivized to use this even more strongly and in fact all of the exchanges that had not been using it are now going to be incentivized to use it so you end up in a problem where too much block space debt made the fee market so untenable as we get to a point where all of this stuff is being unrolled that the only way to get out of it is by taking on more block space debt. Sounds eerily familiar. <laughs> um, it's funny, like I was talking about this with uh, John Carvalho and Phil today, um, or just, just a couple hours ago, um, and uh, I loved uh, uh, John Carvalho's example of what the committing to 10,000 UTXOs in a single address actually was like his his analogy or his wording was that it's a transaction grenade is that you throw out you throw out one seemingly little transaction and it just blows up into 10,000 transactions and that's the only thing that it can do it has to unroll to all 10,000 <laughs> i really like that it's like it's like a time bomb right it's that inevitably um transaction gr grenade is just a is just a really fun uh, really fun terminology. So the the scenario I just laid out, um, like however likely it is, the and maybe it's not likely um, at all, but my problem or the thing that makes makes it bug me a lot is that if everyone is looking out for themselves and following the economic incentives, and CTV becomes any sort of a thing that the commitment is a valid withdrawal or a valid statement that you own Bitcoin by being part of a CTV transaction, that this is how it, like everybody just looking out for themselves and following the incentives, this is what ends up happening, I feel like. But then the question becomes, what could you do with this if you were doing it maliciously? What if Coinbase was actually doing this to users on purpose because they knew next year they were going to do another push for a block size increase? And I use this as an example just because the block size war was the contentious thing and there were so many dynamics and arguments and everything during this day that, uh, or during the, the block size war period that that's just the easiest thing for me to relate to. Um, and this is a block space issue. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not making any claim that this is happening or that people are pushing it because of this. I'm literally just relating it to something that I feel like is relatable to people in Bitcoin. So with that caveat, let's go back. Coinbase wants a hard fork. They want bigger blocks. Let's say we're back in those days and we already have CTV. Fees start to get a little bit out of control. And they switch all of their withdrawals over to CTV to 
mitigate the fee problem. And this helps put the pressure back down, right? Is fee pressure drops um, a little bit and they get, they get all their other uh, big block buddies to do the same thing and it drops a little bit more and then we're back to just kind of stable like blocks because we still had a lot of very bad practices we we did not manage block space very well and a great example of that which i actually saw very recently that i thought was really fascinating actually was that during the peak of the 2017 like fee spike that went up to like 50 dollars like like there were literally huge fees during that whole period uh we are actually clearing consistently now roughly the same very similar i think it's like just just a itch like a little a little bit below but we are consistently and for a pretty long period here uh clearing the same number of transactions as during the fee spike and when it was really really bad in 2017 I thought that was really fascinating. I saw that in somebody's thread. I don't even remember where it was anymore. I wish I could give them credit. Um, if somebody remembers it, uh, let me know and I'll put it in the um, I'll put it in the show notes. But I thought that was really cool, and I think it's an indication of just how better we're using block space today. You know, adoption of Segwit and uh, Lightning. Well, that Lightning doesn't really fall in line with that, but you, you get the idea. All of the things that we could do to save space, to batch, to aggregate, that was actually a big one. There were tons of major exchanges that were not batching anything, um, and uh, that was a huge problem. So we're much better custodians of block space today because of that happening. So we go back to those days. We have not yet changed our behavior, and we're still using it poorly, but because of CTV, we've managed to push this problem into the future. But the thing is, is we don't, again, we cannot tell how many commitments there are in those CTV transactions. So maybe Coinbase actually added in a few of their own, or maybe they were unnecessarily batching way more than they actually needed to when Blockspace was actually relatively available. Again, going back to the example of 10,000 UTXOs or a million UTXOs, something crazy like that. I mean, unlikely, but just, just as an exaggeration to make the point. Now, we start getting, getting to the point during the 2017 run-up, people start unrolling. People start using their Bitcoin. People start trying to withdraw from the CTV, uh, the CTV addresses, I mean. Fees get crazy high again. But now... A lot of these users can't even get their coins because they're in a CTV commitment that may have not offered enough gap to even pay the fee. It might have been a $100 withdrawal, $100 worth withdrawal to a UTXO, and maybe they only left themselves to, because you have to commit to the fee or you have to commit to some, so Jeremy Rubin actually gave an example that you could you could have a sec a, an amount of it that went to like a anyone can spend so that you could actually have a variable fee so that you could set it but maybe you didn't set it high enough maybe you only left yourself five dollars or ten dollars as an optional fee and now fees are literally like 50 bucks and because everyone is trapped and god knows what's happening with the price maybe the price has spiked up maybe now it's plummeting and people desperately need to get their coins you get in a situation you basically ended up in a situation like Ethereum, where the the exit door is just so big that people are paying 50, or excuse me, so small that people are paying thousands and thousands of dollars for a fee just to try to not get wiped out. 
But we're suddenly in a place where it appears like there's no end to this because we don't even know how much debt we have built up in this situation. What does it end up behaving like? It ends up behaving like free spam for all of the exchanges that wanted bigger blocks. The reason spam is not a problem or it's not a long-term problem is because it's costly for the person making the spam. The costly is costly for the person who is making the UTXOs. When Coinbase can essentially commit to having 10,000 UTXOs in the block space, but only have to ever have to pay for one, they're basically getting their spam for free. They're getting their transaction grenade, and the only people who pay for it are the people who are on the other side of the grenade. The cost isn't going to the person who threw the grenade. And you know, I also just can't help but be curious. I, I, can't, I, I can't pinpoint specifics on how this would be done yet, but the way that... The way that it was explained to me that, you know, because you have to unroll the, the tree to get to where your transaction is, it seems like it also, the cost and the amount of data that has to go on chain is actually entirely dependent on who creates the hash tree, um, which inclines me to think that, and I was watching his, uh, Jeremy Rubens specifically, um, uh, MIT Bitcoin Expo on Bit119. Um, and like based on how the the tree is constructed, it seems like Coinbase or one of these other exchanges, like let's say if they were being malicious, could actually construct it so that yes, you could prove that your commitment was there, but that it was purposefully had to unroll a bunch of other stuff to get to it even though those things were not necessary or that those things are not actually related to um, other uh, valid withdrawals. Um, not, not that the transactions wouldn't be valid, but that they would be, you know, something, potentially even something that just paid back to Coinbase. So this one isn't something that I've really dug into, but it just has me wondering, how does the structure of the hash tree um, relate to who has to pay what and by how much and uh, what control does somebody like Coinbase in this situation have over who has to pay what fee? I'd be very curious if there was also an additional way to maliciously construct this to have um, pointlessly more data in it or make it appear as if there's a lot that's unfolding, but it's something where they have like a whole section of the hash tree where they can essentially negate because it's theirs and they're simply adding this extra onus onto the users to unroll. But it, like I said, though, I haven't dug into that element specifically enough. I'm just deeply curious as to how it might be used in that regard as well, if, if that could actually be used against it, because... This is a, this is a clever, would be a clever way to, you know, add block space debt, add, add, uh, an enormous amount of pressure on the block space problem on into the fee market with no cost to the person committing 
to all of that data. And as a lot of people have said, like this is a very sort of primitive in the sense that it's, it enables a lot that we still also don't really know about, that we really haven't thought about. And um, uh, so there's potentially a lot more features and a lot more really clever things that we could do with it. But in the same way, if a malicious actor or somebody trying to push for um, a block size increase or whatever the hell it is, uh, uh, realizes how this could benefit them, they might have plenty of clever ways to use this as well when they realize they can essentially um, burden the chain in the future without having to pay for it today. So again, to kind of reframe this discussion, this is specifically about the idea of thinking about this in any way as like a scalability tool or as, and the economics of the congestion control transaction. And if we are accepting this as a way to quote unquote withdraw coins and claiming that even though the user doesn't have their own UTXO, that they still own it, even though it's behind this single, this single UTXO and however many commitments there are, and doesn't really, uh, doesn't really uh, relate to any of the other potential uses or anything like covenants or vaults. I just wanted to isolate this singular kind of uh, what I think is a bad economic incentive introduced into the fee market, and I, I, I think it's an interesting idea. I think this is. Certainly something worth considering. I think it's worth considering on the idea of using any sort of commitment to future transactions that is essentially unbounded. Um, and I think it's important to consider any potential scaling option that it needs that symmetry of it can scale in, in the receiving sense and it can scale in the sending sense that there's not there's not this huge asymmetry where one side like you get lots of scaling up front quote unquote but it has the cost of needing all of the space all the exact same amount of space later that in my opinion is not scaling that's debt like like i said i think the the easiest way to frame what that is, or the most accurate way to frame what that actually is is block space debt Whereas something like, like let's say Taproot or whatever, or like just the idea of P2SH, like the user is still committing to, um, like, like we talk about in Taproot, it's just a good example, because you can have an unlimited number of branches in your script and, you know, all this stuff, because it's all just a hash tree going back to the public key. Well, what makes that different, what, what makes that not the same economic, the reversal of the economics is that the person needing to, or the person who actually wants to execute a specific branch of it knows, like, it is, that's their branch. And that's the one that they actually need to execute. And to do that, they don't need, all of these other branches don't need to be unrolled. They're options, not uh, committed, uh, committed eg exits, so to speak. Um, they are exits that one can choose, but even if there's 10,000 exits, you're only going to use one of the exits. And then also in the case of going back to the P2SH example, is that again, it's the spender who pays it, not the receiver. So in a sense, CTV, or using a commitment as opposed to a, 
I received those coins and they are in my UTXO. Using the commitment is reversing the gain that we got from P2SH in the sense that uh, while P2SH made it so that the, the person who wanted the restrictions is the person who's paying for the restrictions, well, we're back in the opposite direction where the person who is committing to the restrictions is not paying for any of it. It's the person who redeems it from those restrictions that now has to pay for it. So that one extra step kind of throws the economics back in the opposite direction. So anyway, I think that's all I wanted to cover in this episode specifically. Um, like I said, I'm not, I'm still not done digging through it. Um, I am kind of in a, yeah, I don't, I don't want this right now um, sort of situation. Um, I think the idea of these commitments and stuff, like while there's plenty of amazing features that I think we can get from this, I want, I want a very lengthy discussion on something that um, could, is a primitive in, in the sense that Jeremy talks about. It really does have a lot of things that we don't quite know that could be great features and really great benefits but I want to know in what way and uh, how could these things be used. Um, and uh, it's something, uh, as well as all the other, uh, you know, op, what is it, TX, op, uh, shit, I don't, I, don't, I don't even remember. But there's like multiple other commitment ideas um, or op codes uh, that would enable this same sort of thing that I think deserves an incredibly lengthy discussion and analysis and more people thinking, how can I use this to cause a problem? Um, because I think those avenues, honestly, I think those avenues are there for anything. The question is, does the game theory line up to the economics line up when executing that particular problem and or that particular attack? Uh, and obviously, like, that's the beauty, that's the elegance of the Bitcoin system, is that a 51% hash rate attack costs an exorbitant amount of money. Like, that's the, that is the thing about proof of work, is the economics are aligned so that cooperating and not being malicious, being, uh, being an honest miner, is far more profitable and far less costly than being an attacker. Same with spam. Same with the whole block space deal. Same with the fee economics of having too many scripts and opcodes and things on your transaction, even though you're really just going to send it on one option that goes to one specific address that is yours. You know, technically, prior to P2SH, I could construct a whole bunch of malicious transactions that were freaking huge with these huge, elaborate, crazy opcodes and scripts and all this stuff. Uh, that made someone who had to send me money, like, like let's say I was in litigation or something, and I was like, uh, and, you know, Bit we're on a Bitcoin standard or whatever, and I'm like, you have to send me Bitcoin to this address. I just construct the biggest freaking thing that you could possibly come up with, uh, and, uh, and they have to pay an absolutely exorbitant fee because fuck that guy, right? Um, <laughs> to, to send it to me. Uh, and then I just want to use one single branch of it. Well, thanks to P2SH and, you know, Taproot and these things now, like, that has kind of been realigned, and now I can't really do that. Um, 
Like only only with that very old transaction format where all of it is exposed, does the sender pay for that cost, even though I'm the one creating that cost. Um, and in that same way, uh, I think it's dangerous to say because there is no explicit technical bug that you know we could fund we could make significant changes to the economics of transactions of fees of block space whatever like the game theory the game theory is what makes this thing secure you know it's not just because there's no technical bugs um so i think that's a i think this is a critical consideration um and that's why i hope we keep talking about this um i'd love to hear where someone uh disagrees i would love to hear a defense of this i'm very curious um and uh because i don't think i've really heard much dis I, like i don't I, at least not in anything i haven't seen this discussion anywhere um uh the first time we really got into it was me and my brother and uh my brother tweeted about it like a couple hours ago and he did it all in the context of like oh it's a malicious attack and stuff and you know that's his style um but uh i, I still don't think that ctv specifically is an attack I don't think this is an effort to implement big blocks. Um, and uh, I just think that the, the economics of committing to massive amount of UTXOs without having to pay for it is bad and could be abused. Um, and uh, I would like to have that discussion. So... Um, and also, John Carvalho says I should uh, submit this to the bug bounty thing. Um, I, I might, um, I, I mean, screw it. I, I guess, I guess I will just, just for fun. I've never submitted a bug bounty thing. Um, so, uh, that'll be entertaining. I, I don't, I don't think they'll, I don't think anybody would pay out, but I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. He thinks it's, and, and I loved his, uh, I'll give him credit too for a transaction grenade. I love, <laughs> I love that term. It's wonderful. Um, so, uh. Uh, we'll see. Um, but uh, I've still got tons and tons to learn about all this stuff. I really, like I said, like the idea of, you know, spending five days um, casually watching videos and reading articles and explanations and some Bitcoin optech and thinking that, you know, we really have a handle on what this thing is, um, I think is naive. Um, I, I mean, I could be very wrong about how this is laid out right now um like i said i don't even i don't even know the explicits of how one could make the hash tree maliciously or if that's even possible and it could very well be that nobody even uses the congestion control transaction that we just kind of throw that idea out the window but i i, I don't want to i'm not going to assume something like that you know especially not when we're talking about an actual soft fork for uh bitcoin software so with that um I think I'll close this one out. I'll close this one out. Uh, thank you guys for listening. Keep a lookout on the feed because I think I'm literally just going to roll right into recording the lightning article because I think there's some really fascinating stuff. Uh, and it's, a, like I said, it's a Swan Bitcoin article from Sam Callahan. If you want to get a head start, it's right on their page. Um, but it's such a good article. And I think even even with the price falling like it is today, Jesus, I don't know how you can't be bullish. I don't know how you can't be bullish if you're not thinking about how amazing the Bitcoin Lightning stack is as a global settlement network. Um, and uh, we are going to get into it. So stay tuned. Don't forget. 
I want to give a huge shout out and thank you to the sponsors uh, who allow me to just sit down and read and think and bullshit about Bitcoin all day. Uh, Swan Bitcoin and uh, the Bitbox or Shift Crypto, uh, makers of the Bitbox O2 and lots of other cool little uh, gadgets and security things. You can check both of them out uh, with discounts, referral links, etc. on uh, guyswan.com. Uh, well, slash sponsors, but you can find it right there at the top of the page. And uh, I will catch you next time on the next episode of Bitcoin Audible. I'm Guy Swan, and until then, everybody, take it easy. You have been listening to Bitcoin Audible, a 111 production. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.